Good morning and welcome to our new sermon series which we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months which is we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent and that's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 and uh, these Psalms you know a part of all the, the, the 150 Psalms which you know collectively really were the the Israeli songbook I suppose you would say their, their hymn book and they, they were put together by someone I don't know who I don't know who exactly who that was after the Israelis came back from from exile <coughs> and and these particular Psalms the Psalms of a uh, of ascent were were uh, said or, or sang or, or chanted as the Israelis went on their their, their way uh, to uh, to worship God in Zion and Jerusalem going up the mountain to to the temple or, or to Jerusalem hence the names the sang the Psalms of Ascent collectively with two other Psalms Psalm 135 and Psalm 136 they were known as the great halal the great halal it's really interesting. I mean, I only knew the word halal from from Arabic, you know, where we get halal meat. Uh, and I, I never really, really knew it from uh, from Hebrew. You know, in Arabic, halal means permissible. But I thought, what does it mean in, in, in Hebrew? Why why are these songs called the, the great halal? And when I looked at the answer, I kind of thought, you idiot. Of course it means that. Do you know what it means? Do you know what halal means in in, in Hebrew, you probably do. When I say the word hallelujah, hallelujah, uh, and yeah, these the word halal means praise. So so these collectively are, are, the, are the psalms of praise, the great psalms of praise, you know, understandably, you know, as they went up to the temple in worship. Yeah, just as a slight side, it made me think about our preparation for worship. You know, do we have any preparation for, for worship? Do we have any preparation that we do as we come to church collectively, like these Jews were coming together collectively? You know, I often find that the first five minutes of our service, you know, you can spend settling down, getting getting your head in the right space. And really, as church leaders, sometimes we uh, kind of like, permit that in a way by saying well, well we'll get the notices out of the way at the start while people are, are still arriving and getting their head in the right place but you know really not a good idea but we're told in 1st Corinthians 14 verse 26 when you come together you know when you come as church together everyone has a hymn or a, a word of instruction or a revelation or a, or a tongue or interpretation now I don't want to go into detail there's a whole sermon what that's all about the only point I want to make here is that the Apostle Paul assumed that people spent time in preparation for coming to church, for coming to worship, coming together. That they'd have already been in God's presence and had something to share with the church body. That's really a, a question for us to consider. You know, do we put any preparation into coming to worship God, into coming to share with our fellow Christians? Are we coming to give or are we just coming to receive? It's a question that we need to put out there. Perhaps individually and maybe collectively, 
we need to consider how we honour God in our preparation for coming to, to worship. And, you know, there's another analogy, you know, to draw from this as well. The, the Israelis would go up to the temple to do collective worship three times a year for, for three great um, celebrations and feasts. And um, in many ways, um, it was like a, a spiritual holiday for them. You know, they really would live where they lived and not everybody was as committed as, as others would be. But the ones who went on this pilgrimage, the ones who went to Jerusalem to the temple, uh, were the, the keen ones. And and they met each other on the route and they walked there together and they worshipped together and they had a great time. And it made me think really about a couple of things in my own life. Like when I go to New Wine, the, the Christian conference, or if you go to a Christian conference, Spring Harvest or Keswick or whatever, you know, you get a little bit of a spiritual holiday. You meet with like-minded people. You have fantastic teaching and praise and all that kind of stuff. And then you return to, to your normal life for 51 weeks of the year. Or at a lower level, it's like going to church on a Sunday. You know, for some of us, you know, we may spend six and three-quarter days living normal life and have a morning, you know, where we get together with other people. And really, this psalm, the, the psalmist who writes this psalm, is, a, is crying out to God uh, against that attitude. You know, wanting his whole life to be the same. And I want to just once again challenge Judge about, about not seeing coming to church as a, as a spiritual holiday. Yeah, but actually, you know, living the, the same life seven days a week and it's Sunday mornings, you know, it's just a way of expressing that and bringing something to share from your experiences throughout the week with the rest of the church family. So that's your, kind of your background to, to all these Psalms. Let's dig into the first one we come across, which is Psalm 120. Um, it's not long, it's only seven verses, so we're going to go through it basically from, from top to bottom. So let's look at verse one, where the psalmist says, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. You know, when I first read that, you know, my kind of immediate reaction is a bit negative. I kind of go, well, Billy, for you, you call to God and he answers you, Yeah. I wish he was answering me, because I don't seem to get that. But this week, when I've been preparing to this sermon, uh, surprise, surprise, this happens amazingly often. Uh, I was reading my, my daily notes that I get with Rick Warren online, sent to my phone every morning. And this week, uh, he was talking about answered prayer. And he says, God always answers prayers. But he does it in one of three ways. He says, he might say no, he might say grow, or he might say go. But God always answers prayers. <clears throat> so you get the idea what I'm saying here. He might just say, no, this is not what's best for you. This, I know better than you, you know, like hopefully parents know better than the children. And the answer to your request is no. Now, that is an answer. We may not like it because of our immaturity or lack of overall understanding, but it's an answer. Or God may say, grow. 
listen, I'm not against what you're saying. I'm going to do what you're saying, but you're not quite ready for it yet. A bit of growth, a bit of refining, a bit of greater understanding, and you'll be ready. So my answer is grow. Or you may just say, go, yeah, run with it. Take it. It's yours. Yep, it's for you. Go and do with it whatever you know is on your mind because this is right for you. I found that really helpful about uh, reflecting on the fact that, you know, instead of getting frustrated with God, we need to dig in and listen more to what God is saying too, is listen to God's answers as opposed to being frustrated a little bit like children are when we don't get the yes answer, the go answer that we, what we want from our perspective. So in verse 2, we find out what's uh, and the, the, the person's mind has written this psalm. And he says, save me from lying lips and deceitful tongues. And you read that and you think, wow, do, do humans never change? You know, this was a, a problem, you know, back in whatever it would be, maybe, you know, 500 BC, uh, that commit maybe more than that, maybe we don't exactly know when the psalm was written, you know, maybe 600, 700 BC, and yet uh, it's got the same problem, you know, people been affected because of uncontrolled tongues. You know, now we know that children's ditty is wrong, sticks and stones will break my bones, but you can finish it yourself, can't you? Names will never hurt me. Absolute garbage. Please understand that is absolute rubbish. Names can hurt you. In fact, bones can heal after six weeks. But the things that people say to us, you know, these the lying lips or deceitful tongues, they can hurt us for a lifetime. You know, the, the tongue is massively powerful. You know, and you know, I want you to, to realize. You know, the, the power of the tongue, you know. And if you're suffering from people that are, are saying real cool things to you, lying about you, I'd encourage you, if possible, to approach that person and, and let them know uh, how you feel. Uh, and if you're not unable to do that, maybe approach them with somebody else for support, as the Bible encourages. Or if not, at least, you know, Peter and... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7 encourages us to cast our anxieties on, on Jesus because he cares for us. Peter is a guy who had a lot of hassle you know, in his life, but he knows that he has somebody there who will share his problems, who will not just share his problems, but carry his problems, you know, carry his anxieties because he cares for us. Uh, the other side of that coin, is that the person who probably says the most hurtful things about you is yourself. Uh, now, I'm not blaming us for doing that, but we tend to pull ourselves down more than anybody else does. Maybe because it's we've heard these things said in the past by parents, by teachers, by friends, but, but whatever it is, we then repeat them as a mantra, time and time again. You know, psychologists say that it takes 10 positive affirmations to to balance out one 
negative affirmation. Affirmation, one negative, you know, detraction. How often, you know, do we say to ourselves positive things? Oh, I'm great. Oh, I'm really good. You know, I can achieve that. You know, I'm not so bad. Put it more English, British way, you know. Uh, how often we do that? As opposed to do we see these things like, oh, I'm rubbish. I'm never going to do anything. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm whatever. You know, how often do we see these things? Ten positive things to outbalance one negative thing. So let me encourage you not to be a person who pulls yourself down. Dear me, there's plenty of others who unfortunately do that for us. So, what happens to, to the person who uses the tongue that way? Well, verses 3 and 4 tell us about that. Uh, tell us what happens to people who lie and are deceitful. And you can you know, look at these verses in front of you. You know, when it comes to lies and deceit, there's a, a saying that was said by one of the most men that I respect most uh, in the world because of his, his thinking, which is the psychologist uh, Jordan Peterson. He's written many books uh, on uh, personal behaviour and, and how to get the most out of life, I suppose you'd say. He's lectured to millions around the world. And he talks a lot about the best way to live your life. And uh, he's written a couple of books called The Rules of Life. And he was interviewed once and he said, he was asked, what is the most important rule of life? And he said this, tell the truth, or at least don't lie. Uh, which is really interesting, you know, you know, quite quite shocking that he put that as the most important single thing you can do to live a, a fruitful and you know worldly life. And uh, he he says this from being a clinical psychologist for, for over twenty five years, and he's watched uh, what happens to people who who lie, and how that in the end it seems as if the uh, the universe twists, and, and when you when you lie, and at some point in time, it wants to straighten itself, and it comes back to haunt you. The Bible puts it uh, another way. The Bible says, "Be sure your sins will find you out." It doesn't say, "Be sure your sins will be found out or found out." He says, "Be sure your sins will find you out." And I believe that what the Bible is saying there is, you know, there's no free ride when it comes to lying, when it comes to being deceitful. There is a consequence of that, be it a consequence in your soul or a consequence, you know, in, in the universe that, that, that ripples out. You know, we can be led to think that somebody got away with it, but the Bible and Jordan Peterson from his psychological point of view says that's not the case. It's not the case. You know, when James, the apostle, the leader of the early church, was summing up Christianity in, in, uh, in his book, uh, in James, uh, beginning of chapter, uh, he says this, he says two things. He says, what is Christianity, true Christianity? He says, it's living a righteous life and looking after those less fortunate in our society. And in the verse just before this, he says, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, 
but can't control your tongue. You're deceiving yourself and your Christianity is worthless. That is the almighty declaration from the leader of the early church, from the brother of Christ. He says, live a righteous life. You know, don't lie. Don't lie. Live a righteous life. And if you can't control your tongue, what's the point of your Christianity? Now, we'd like to think that he's doing a little bit of an analogy there, a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration. But we can't be definite. He's really saying, you know, it's really, really important to control your tongue. And as I say, the Bible says holistically um, that if you can't do that, there will be consequences to you and those around you. You know, that is an amazing warning to us. You know, in Psalm 120 verse 4, you know, we're told the consequences in that psalm, you know, of those who don't control like their tongues and lie and be deceitful. You know, verses 5 and 6, uh, in this psalm, you know, mentions two places that are far away from from Israel, in, in Asia Minor and, and in Arabia, and the, and the person who's who's um, who's written this psalm is is basically saying, you know, trying to cope with these lies, this harassment, this deceit, makes them feel isolated, makes them feel alone. So what do they do about it? What do they do? about these feelings of isolation, of, of being alone, you know, being harassed in a, in a foreign land, living amongst barbarians, you know, is the idea. That's how it makes them feel, you know, with no friends around. Uh, and what he does, he does two things. The, the first thing he decides to do is to worship God. Remember that this psalm is sung with people on the way to worship God, you know, we obviously don't know the exact circumstances of the author of this psalm. It may be a psalm of David. Verse 7 implies that the author may be a king. Um, but we don't know um, the, who it is. But we do know, according to verse 1, that he cries out to God. He communicates with God. So no one is pretending that this situation is easy. It's not. It's a real life situation of getting abuse verbal abuse of lies, of deceit, making you feel as if you've got no friends. But we do know what to do. The answer is not to retreat into your bedroom. It's not to isolate yourself. It's not to say, oh, woe is me. You know, life can't carry on. It's to worship God and get together with other Christians and to cry out to God, to, to talk to God to get his communication, get his advice, get support from others and from God. Finally, you know, verse 7 reveals really how we should live in the midst of this verbal abuse, of this tirade of, of lies and deceit that we're getting put on us. And it says a person of peace. That the psalmist complains that people are doing that are not people of peace, but that he needs to be a person of peace. Live the way God wants us to live. That the Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom, 
and I've preached on that a few times and you know, I've spent hours talking about it, but very simply, shalom is a principle mentioned throughout the Bible, you know, many places. And it means to be a person who, uh, who has the wholeness of God, the, the fullness of God expressed through them. And it roughly, if you look at all the verses and try and work out what it's looking at in totality, it roughly means that to be people of integrity, to be people who are, who are searching for, for social justice and to be looking for prosperity for all. Live a life of integrity, live a life of looking for social justice for everybody else and prosperity for all. That's a pretty high standard to live by. And even if you're a person who manages to live like this, it doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. You're not going to have to cope with lies and deceit. But that is the way to live in the midst of lies and deceit. A life of peace, a life of shalom. So when we are living in a with people who have no integrity, who are selfish, who lie. What do we do? Well, according to the psalm, we worship God, we communicate with God, we live a life of peace, and we do that as fellow Christians. Let me encourage you uh, today and this week to dig into the psalm and just reflect on yourself.